This audio presentation is brought to you by the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. The BMA Seminary provides accredited theological education for equipping God's people for Christ-centered service and leadership roles with three online degrees available now. We are committed to the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture and to making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information about the BMA Seminary and its online degree programs, go to bmats.edu or call toll-free 800-259-5673. That's 800-259-5673. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Brother Dave, for leading us so well in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and preaching the gospel to us as we sing and as we preach the gospel to one another. Wasn't that wonderful? Very biblical. Amen. Well, keep your place in Psalm 121. That's where we're going to be this morning. Psalm 121, a psalm of ascent. And uh, as we begin this psalm, I, I couldn't help but think about my children in relation to what the theme of this psalm is all about. You know, every year, my family, we go up to this particular lake in Arkansas. And um, being in Arkansas, you can actually get in the water without fear of getting eaten, right? In Louisiana and East Texas, there are gators in the water. But in this part of Arkansas, it's not. And so every year, it's the same thing. The very first day we go to this lake, I will take the kids out on a boat. And um, I'll jump in the water. And I'll say, come on, guys, let's jump in the water together. Here we are out in the middle of this lake, open water, and uh, the kids are always very hesitant that first day to jump in the water because they're thinking something could be in the water. So this last year when I jump in and none of the kids get in with me, I said, come on guys, what are you waiting for? Be brave, jump in the water. And my son says to me, dad, how do you know there's nothing in this water that's going to eat us? And I said, well, first of all, don't you trust your father? I mean, your father would not ever put you in danger. I love you, and I want to take care of you. So I would not, first of all, be in this water if I thought something could eat me. And secondly, I wouldn't try to put you in this water if I thought something would eat you. And he said, yeah, but Dad, you don't know. Now, see, he's getting to this age where he's getting smarter, and he's saying, but you don't really know, Dad. And I said, well, you're right. Personally, I don't know of an instance, but... Son, I did talk to someone who does. I talked to a man who owns this boat and who runs the boat on this lake. And he has talked with rangers and other people. And so the good news is, my research, there's nothing in this water that can eat us. There's no sharks and we're too far north for alligators and there's only fish. So as far as dad knows and as far as this other man knows, you're good to go. And so my son says, yeah, but dad, those are just words. And I said, well, they are words. I said, but son, for the rest of your life, in many instances, all you're going to have are words. And you're going to have to believe and trust those words. So do you trust your dad? Do you have faith in your dad and in the words that he's saying that you will get in the water? So finally, they all start to climb down the side of the boat And they get in the water, and me being the good dad that I am, right when they all start to touch their feet in the water, I say, ah, something got my leg! And they all freak out, and they all jump right up on the boat, and we have to go through the whole thing again. 
But you know, by the end of the week, they're little fish, and they're swimming all around the lake on their own, and, and I have to fight them to keep the life jacket off. It's just at first they're really hesitant because they haven't experienced it in a while. And maybe that's the way we are when it comes to God and His provision to us. You know, God says a lot of great things in His Word, particularly today, some of the things we're looking at that He has said is that He will protect us, He will keep us, He will guard us. Now, that's a beautiful saying of words. But I think the deeper question in our heart and in our mind through the experience of living is this, can we trust those words? Are they just good, poetic, beautiful words? Or are they promises that lead to reality? You know, Martin Luther said about this particular song of ascent, he said this, let me quote, This Psalm 121 exhorts the godly to a constancy of faith and an expectation of help. Think about that. This psalm, when you read it, it exhorts us to do two things, Luther is saying. First of all, it exhorts the reader that you are going to have to have a strong faith in these words. A strong faith that will go beyond your limited experiences and the life that you've lived to trust the God behind these words. And then this psalm is going to call you not only to have a strong faith, but it's going to call you and I to have great expectations upon the one making the promises. That we are going to expect Him to fulfill what He has said. Isn't that beautiful? So even though these are just words... They are words backed with a promise from Almighty God. And this psalm calls us to godly constancy of faith and an expectation of help. Now as we get into this psalm, let me just note very quickly as a side note, this is a song of ascent. And many of you went to the Simeon Trust Workshop last week and you studied the songs of ascent and they are beautiful. And there's all kinds of theories that are out there of what these psalms Uh, came about from. I mean, there's some that say these psalms came about because they were steps. And within the psalm itself, there's gradations, there's steps. And the reason some people believe that is because the Latin Vulgate translates this word gradiated songs. And so some have proposed these fanciful theories that within every psalm, there's like steps So, you know, like Psalm 21 starts off, I lift my eyes and it keeps going and it keeps going. And then it gets to, you know, day and night and then it gets to all of life. I mean, you just keep stepping up. Even though that's a beautiful theory, I I just think that's speculation. Uh, The Hebrew translates it songs going up. And so because the Hebrew translates its songs going up, people have said, well, it, it represents the steps of the sanctuary. There were 15 steps Uh, from the courtyard of the women up to the tabernacle. And so maybe they sang these as they walked the steps. Again, fanciful, but there's no conclusive evidence. Others have said these were songs that were sung by those in captivity in Babylon. And so when they were in captivity, they would sing these songs, dreaming of the day when they could go back to Jerusalem. Again, a great idea. I just don't think we know. It's just speculation. And lastly, some have said, well, these were probably songs 
that the pilgrims sang, the Jewish pilgrims that is, not the American ones, the Jewish pilgrims sang as they were going up to the different feasts that would happen in Jerusalem. I think that's probably the most common, most likely, most reasonable explanation. But if that whets your appetite to study it more, then study it more, right? And come up with your own fanciful speculative theory, right? So anyway, we're talking about these Psalms of Ascent. And so there's several of them in the Psalms, uh, particularly verse, uh, chapters 120 to 134 comprise these Psalms of Ascent. They're written by different authors So here in Psalm 121, this is a psalm that exhorts us to faith. So two things I want you to see in this psalm as we read it together. This psalm promises to the reader, whether that reader was in Babylonian captivity or whether they were going up to the Feast of Jerusalem or whether they were climbing 15 steps or whether they're sitting in chapel in Jacksonville, Texas, it promises the reader that God is going to take care of us if we will look to Him. So the first thing I want you to see that I think the psalm brings out to us, that it, it exhorts our faith to trust in, is this. Number one, God has the power to help you. God has the power to help you. Now as the psalm begins, you start noticing that the psalmist is calling the one who he looks to help as one who is powerful. So notice verse 1. He says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? Now the first thing that the psalmist exhorts us to do, that he is doing, as he's either singing to himself or singing to other people, is he's saying we need to look to God. God has the power to help us. And we need to look to God. I mean, notice the wording there, lift up our eyes. You know, often when we're in distress, the common adage is that you're downcast, right? You're looking down today. And so that's the way we typically are when we're depressed, when we're frustrated, we look down. And yet the psalmist is saying the exact opposite from our vernacular, isn't he? He's saying when I'm depressed, when I'm upset, or, or even when I'm going to worship, I'm looking up. I'm looking for help. I'm lifting up my eyes. I'm looking to the hills. Well, there's a lot of theories about that word hill, maybe because Canaanite worship was still on the hills. And, you know, this, again, speculation, and I don't have time to get into all that, and I don't know that it's really that helpful for you in a sermon. It's certainly helpful in a seminary class But this isn't a seminary class. So I'll just say that he's lifting his eyes. He's looking up. He knows who he should be looking to. And he says, from where does my help come from? He answers it. It comes from up. It comes from looking up. So imagine a time in your life where you've had to literally reach for help. I was thinking about this the other day when I was about six years old. I remember in our hometown... We had this beautiful place. It was a, it was a spring-fed pool-slash-lake. I don't really know what it was. They ended up closing it for insurance reasons. But it was this big, beautiful place right there outside of Memphis in a, in a little town called Olive Branch. It was called Maywood. And everyone in the community would always go every summer to Maywood. They would only charge you a few dollars, and you could picnic. And it had a sandy beach, and it was the size of a very large pond. And my mother would take us there, and we would swim. And I remember one day, because it was a pond, essentially, 
uh, I was swimming and I got way out of my area of competency. And because I was enjoying swimming and going out into the water and playing like I was a boat or a shark, I end up into the deep end. And when I realize it, looking around, I realize how far away I am from land and how exhausted I am and how I cannot breathe. And so I begin to panic and I begin to try to swim back to the shore. And someone must have noticed my panic and they must have noticed me out there by myself. I don't know what happened after that, but I know I began to just look up. In fact, my feet stopped being on the surface of the water as a swimmer would be, and it started being down to the bottom. I was now sinking. And I remember I was sinking and my head was up and I was trying to grasp for one last breath of air. The place was crowded that day, so there were hundreds of people everywhere, but it didn't seem like anyone was noticing me. And then suddenly, as my head bobs up, looking up at that last minute for that last breath of air, a teenage boy, I just remember this so vividly, reaches out and grabs my hand. He grabs me as I'm grabbing up, and he lifts me up. And I remember he was so kind, he lifted me up to himself and he said, let me help you. And he swam me back to shore and made sure I could breathe again. I mean, that was just a beautiful moment in life where somebody, I had no idea who he was, rescued me. I mean, I had no choice but to look up. And in looking up, that was the only help that I could receive. I think that's the idea here behind what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, you know, you're going to come to a place in your life where you have no other choice but to look up. You can choose to look down, but really you're drowning. And so when you look up and you reach up, the promise of God is when you lift up your eyes, you will have help. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Now, He has the power to help you. I mean, number one, when you look up, He's going to help you when you look and when you reach. But let me say this, not only does He have the the power when you look up, but He has the power because He's the Creator. Notice how the psalmist phrases this. God has the power to help you. Verse 2, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I mean, your helper is not just a kind being who sits in the heavens. Your helper is not a god of Roman or Greek mythology who is temperamental. Your helper is not imaginary. It's not an idol of wood or stone. Your helper is none other than the creator of the entire universe. You cannot get any higher than that, right? I mean, listen to what the psalmist is saying. You can't get any higher help than this kind of help. If you'll reach up, He has the power to help you because He is the creator of both heaven, the heavens, and the earth. You know, I like to imagine when I read that, the psalmist is trying to one-up any other God here. It's like when we were little and we would say to our best friend, well, my dad is made uh, of metal and he can beat you up. And then I would respond to my best friend, well, your dad may be made of metal, but my dad is made of steel. And he would say, ah, yes, well, your dad's made of steel. My dad's made of titanium. And he would say, ah, your dad's made of titanium. Well, my dad is made of the strongest element of the universe, and I don't know what that is, right? We would try to one-up each other. We'd try to keep going. We do this with our children. I love you to the moon and back, to which my second son says, 
Well, I love you to the sun and back. To which I reply, well, I love you to the galaxy and back. And he says, well, I love you to the universe and back, and you can't beat that. And so it's like we try to get as high as we possibly can. I think that's what the psalmist, in a very serious way, is doing right here. He's saying there's no other God, there's no other being, you cannot get any higher. The creator of heaven and earth is the one who helps you, is the strong one who is in your corner. He has the power to help you. He is the creator. Our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. But notice what else. Not only is God the creator, he has the power to help us because he is also the sustainer. He is the sustainer. Now, there's several verses here that speak of the sustaining ability, the ability of God to help us and keep us. Number one, you notice in verse three, he will not let your foot be moved. Now, that could mean if you're standing on a mountain or you're going up to a mountain to worship, that God has got your feet. Your feet will not slip. That's a possible interpretation of that. But I think the simplest interpretation is that he's saying, I'll guard your footsteps. I'll guard your footsteps all of life, where you walk, where you go. You know, we say the word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Well, God is saying, I'm that lamp and I'm that light and I'm that guard and I'm that keeper that will not let your foot stumble. Notice what else. He's a sustainer because he's always watching. Verse 4, he never slumbers nor sleeps. Now, you'll read some commentaries that will try to make a distinction between these two words. I don't think you can do that. I think they're just trying to make a point. Let's not get too detailed here. I think the common sense point that the author is trying to make is simply this. God isn't like you, and he's not like me, and he's not like the people we hire to protect us, or even the armies that we have over us. You know, the armies of the world sleep. Sometimes they are caught napping, and the enemy sneaks his way in while they're sleeping. And great disaster comes. But God is not like that. God instead is always awake. He is always watching. He is always ready. So you don't have to worry. He is a sustainer. He is there to help your footsteps. He is there to always watch you. Notice what else? Verse 5. He's a sustainer. He is always beside you. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade on your right hand. This means that He is beside you. He's protecting you. He is always with you in your presence. And then finally, look at verse 6. He's a sustainer because... He keeps us. Notice He preserves you by sun or by moon. I think that in verse 6 means by day or by night. Now, you read some commentaries, Spurgeon especially, he has some really weird theories about the moon. You know, he says the sun, uh, it, it makes total sense because in the eastern world, they would have been very familiar with the damaging effects of the sun on the desert and on their body and in the heat and in the midday. So that makes perfect sense that God would protect them from the sun. But then guys like Spurgeon get off into this really weird stuff, and I, I don't think any of this is true, but they start talking about the damage that can come of people who stay in the moonlight too long. And so Spurgeon even starts giving these stories about sailors who he's heard of who have these conditions because they fell asleep on their night watch and they had moonlight all night long and it had damaging effects upon their life. 
Now, that's a good example of really bad illustration, application, and interpretation of a text, all right? I, I don't think we're trying to be that literal. Now, maybe some of you are scientists and doctors, and you would actually correct me and say, no, there are things that happen in the moonlight. You know, for example, people turn into werewolves if they're exposed in the moonlight too long. All right, so, so maybe that's the case, and maybe you would correct me on that, but I don't really know of any real conditions like that. So I would say, don't be too wooden and literal in your interpretation. Just look at it and say, I think this just means that God's going to be with us in the day, in the night. He never sleeps. He's always with us. What's the point? The point is, He is a sustainer. And the point of all of this is what? That God has the power to help us. This is a psalm. Remember what Luther said. This is a psalm that is supposed to elicit a constancy of faith and an expectation of help. And I think that when you start reading it, immediately you see you can look to Him, you can reach up to Him. He is the creator of the universe. There is no one greater than Him. He is the sustainer. He watches over you night and day. He has your right hand. He keeps your feet. This ought to build faith in us, right? It's an incredible promise. God has the power to help us. And that's good. But if that's all we had we still wouldn't have enough, would we? We need to answer one other question that this psalm poses to us, the reader. If this is meant to elicit faith and and great expectations from God, then I think we're going to have to ask the question, okay, we know that God has the power to help us. The greater question now facing us is, does God have the will to help us? I mean, okay, you've convinced me he has the power, but just because he has the power to help me does not mean he will indeed help me. What proof do I have in these promises that God will help me, that he wants to help me? I'll give you a good example of this. You know, if you've ever seen the uh, Frank uh, Baum movie, The Wizard of Oz, you know, the entire movie, uh, four people, presume upon the kindness of a wizard they have never met, right? The wizard will give you a brain. The wizard will give you a heart. The wizard will give you courage. And the wizard will take me home. And so they all are off to see this wizard who they've never met, who is the great and powerful Oz. Everyone knows he's the great and powerful Oz, but... What they don't know and what they soon discover when they finally reach the merry old land of Oz is that even though he is great and powerful, he is not good. And he does not want to help them. And they have presumed upon him. They have presumed upon his goodness. Now, of course, we know the rest of the story. He doesn't want to help them because he can't really help them. But up until that point, what we learn is that Just because a being can do something doesn't mean he will do it. And I think that that's a good question to ask about God. I think that's what lots of skeptics are asking about God, don't you? They're saying, you Christians are always preaching a gospel that God will be with us. But I lost my mother last year and I didn't feel like God was with me. Or I lost my husband a year ago and I don't feel like God was with me. 
Or I lost my job, or cancer struck our family, or tragedy struck our nation. And I'd just like to know, where do you think God is in that? You tell me He has the power, but I want to know, does He have the will? Just Sunday, coming home from church, I was listening to NPR. And uh, a comedian was on NPR. At the very moment, I was driving home from church, and she was mocking God. And she said in her comedic act, I used to tell my grandmother, who was a believer a Lutheran, by the way, that, and, and she made a joke about that. She said, a Lutheran, by the way, they're not really believers, are they? Ha, huh, that was a good Baptist joke. And then she goes on and she says, so I was telling my grandmother, who's this Lutheran, why, if there's a God, does he allow bad things to happen? And my grandmother said, well, you know, God works in mysterious ways, honey. To which my reply was, maybe he should not work in mysterious ways. I mean, everybody else that works in mysterious ways gets in trouble. If I go to work and I work in mysterious ways, I'm going to get fired, right? Or if I'm around kids and I work in mysterious ways, I'm going to get arrested. And so, of course, everybody's busting out laughing at this point, thinking it's a funny triad, but yet, you know, she's mocking God, talking about why is he so mysterious? What's he got to hide? But I think that comedian makes a very good point to us who hold the infallibility of Scripture. She's saying to us, okay, you say he has the power, but does he have the will? Well, let's look at what the psalmist says. Again, all we have is faith. All we have are the promises. They are enough. But I think what we've got to settle in our heart is not only does God have the power, not only is is he the creator and sustainer, but I think we also have to determine... Is he good? And so here the psalmist promises us that God is good. Notice the goodness of God. It says in verse 7, The Lord will keep you, will guard you from all evil. So there is the intention of God spelled out in general terms. God is going to keep you from all evil. Boy, that's an incredible promise, right? Verse 8 The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. That's another incredible promise of intention. God has the intention of taking care of us. And we could go back to other verses like, you know, verse 3, He won't let our foot stumble. 4, He doesn't sleep. 5, He's the shade at our right hand. 6, He watches us night and day and protects us. He will keep us from everything. It's as if the psalmist has led us in these first six verses to verses 7 and 8. It's a crescendo. He leads us to the climax of the song. God will be with you every step of every way. And the end of the matter is this. He has all intention to keep you from all evil, to keep your going out and your coming in. End of discussion. Case closed. That's the story. Believe it. God has the will to help you. Now that's good, but still I would say it's not good enough. I still have questions as I read this hymn, so let's keep exploring because there are answers. Now not only does God have the will, but God makes a bold and blatant promise within this psalm that He will act. Not only does He have the desire to do it, but He promises to do it. Now... You know, we, we have to be careful because we could come to a psalm like this and we could, we could be in danger of preaching this a little too, 
um, pie in the sky. You know, so my professor in my doctoral work, Dr. Uh, Brian Chappell, who wrote the book Christ-Centered Preaching, he used to say, beware of pie-in-the-sky sermons that promise people impossible things, and it's just too lofty. Don't do that. Don't preach that. And this is in danger if we're not discerning enough we could preach a pie-in-the-sky sermon. And if I stopped right here, then this would be a pie-in-the-sky sermon. I would be just telling you a bunch of fluff that would maybe make you feel good, but it wouldn't really help you, because I would lead you to this point to say, God's going to keep you from all evil, and yet some of you that are thinkers, that are actually interacting with the text, you're actually listening, you're thinking, but, but, what about this instance in my life? You know? When I wasn't kept from all evil, when I was molested, I mean, what about that moment when I don't really remember where God was? And I look back and I scratch my head and I think, well, he said he would keep me from all evil. Am I at fault? Am I culpable in this? Or, or maybe it's, it's something else. Maybe we think to ourselves, where was God in this horrible moment of my family, he was going to keep me from all evil, and yet my parents got a divorce. It was a horrible moment. Where was he? Where was all this protecting and this keeping your feet and keeping you day and night? Because there were a lot of nights where I didn't feel like God was really there. And so if you're a thinking person that actually interacts with the text, then your heart's going to be moved, not just your head, right? And you're going to say, well, this is great, but is it real? Well, the faith that I want to encourage in you. And friends, let me just go back to what I said to my, my nine-year-old on the boat. You know, in the end, it's all faith. I mean, I can't tell you why you were molested or why the divorce happened or why you lost someone to cancer or why the church split or why you didn't get the job. I can't tell you that. What I can tell you is that life is very much made up of faith and that these promises are all we have to hold on to. They are enough. But the true thinking believer is not just going to preach pie in the sky. We're going to take them and say, listen, I don't know why in God's sovereignty He allowed these things, but I do know He's a keeper. And so what I want you to put in your heart and what I want you to put in your mind is that He's a keeper. Now notice the word there, keeper, that occurs over five times in Psalm 121. Not only does God want to help us, but He promises to help us. He will help us. And it's found, I think, in the word keeper. Now, J.A. Motyer, if that's the way you say his name, says that that is a noun that would be better translated as guardian. So he is a guardian. You see this three times specifically. God is called a guardian, a keeper in this text. A total of five times... He said either directly or indirectly to be a guardian, a keeper. That is, he guards us. And five times in the text, we are assured that he is a guardian who cares for us. So what we have to do when we come to this psalm is we have to say, one thing I know is absolutely certain is that God is going to guard me and keep me and protect me no matter what befalls me. So the end of the matter is this. When you read a psalm like this, you cannot preach it and you cannot cannot internalize it to say, God's going to keep me away from all evil. That is not what is being said here. 
I'll quote J.M. Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce, one of the best. He said, when Psalm 121 says, my help comes from the Lord, it's acknowledging that we are going to need help on our journey. When it speaks of the Lord watching over us day and night, it implies that we're going to need watching, right? So what I want to get you to see is that God's promise here is not that you're never going to have evil. His promise here is not that you're never going to have problems. His promise is even though you will face evil, you will face trials, you will face temptation, I'm going to be right there with you guarding and keeping you. Now that's a promise we can preach. That's a promise we can hold on to. And we don't understand everything, but we trust, right? We trust that a day will come, the day of the Lord, when all the injustices will be made right, when all of the things that don't add up will add up, when God will expose the hearts of men and everything that we've done for Him will be tested and tried and proven through fire. And we hope for that day, right? But right now it's not that day. So we just keep on focusing on the keeper the guardian who has us in his hands, trusting with great expectations and constant faith, as Luther said, that he is going to take care of us to the very, very end. And you see this illustrated in the New Testament, don't you? I mean, number one, you see this illustrated in the life of the Apostle Paul. First of all, I mean, you go to Romans 8, 35 to 39... And in that passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul says, we are more than conquerors. I mean, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ that's in Christ Jesus. The love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us. I mean, those are some bold words, aren't they? We're more than conquerors. We always have the victory. But then in 2 Corinthians 11... 23 to 29, the apostle begins telling us of all the hardships he's faced. Now, how can you be more than a conqueror and still face incredible hardships where you were shipwrecked and almost drowned and beaten and starved to death and robbed for the sake of the gospel? It's both and. I mean, Paul knows this principle in Psalm 121. God isn't saying he's going to remove all the evil... He's not saying that he's going to remove all the pain. He's saying you are going to have it and I will be with you and I will get you to the end. And that's why he can say we're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus looking to that future day and why he can also say I've endured a lot painfully for the gospel. One more example and then I'm finished. I mean, isn't that also the story of Christ? Right? I mean, think about the Garden of Gethsemane. Our own Lord and Savior, though He was God in the flesh and 100% man, He endured incredible pain, not only in the garden as He pled with God. The cup was not taken away, was it? He was put on the cross and brutally murdered for our sin. And yet we're told by the writer of Hebrews, we're told that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us, right? He knows us. He can sympathize with us because He suffered. He suffered. And He suffered more than we ever will. 
He suffered to the point of, of full exposure to that pain and that evil without being able to give in to temptation. You, know, you and I can give in and find release. Even though it's wrong, we can give in to temptation and find release. We can shut down. Christ had no ability to give in and no ability to shut down. So when it says He endured temptation for us, it means the full force of temptation was unleashed upon Him. I mean, think about that. You know, it's like us. When, when something happens to us, our body will automatically shut down to protect us. If you have an accident on a motorcycle, for example... I saw a man, this happened to him once, he was thrown from the motorcycle in front of me. His body was bloodied up. He got up immediately out of shock and tried to walk towards the side of the road. And then he just collapsed. He was in so much pain that his body physically shut down. Talk to a doctor about this. It's amazing. The body has a way of protecting you from the immense pain that you're feeling by shutting down. It's a way to help you cope. Friends, when we're under immense temptation... We have this ability to shut down by actually giving in. But Christ had no such pain receptors. He had no ability to shut it off. When He faced temptation, He faced the full force, unable to shut down because He had to endure it. Because He could not give in to sin. Now think about that. Here Christ Himself in the garden, on the cross, being tempted. He's blessed by God. God was with Him but He endured for our sake. So, friends, I think as we close this psalm, the point is not that we won't have problems, but that God will keep us safe as we go through those problems. That's the promise. That's what you have to decide if you're going to believe it's just words or if you're going to believe it's promises that I can hold on to. Well, I believe that. I trust that. And I'm going to tell you many times in my ministry, that is all I have. How about you? Is that enough? Is that enough? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm sung by worshipers, no doubt, to encourage one another, strengthen one another, bring hope in the midst of trial, temptation, sadness, brokenness. We pray that it would also encourage us that we would sing it to ourselves in the darkest moments, in the deepest valleys that we would trust that you are still good, you are still God, your promises are good, you are a God who can help us and a God who will help us. We trust that in Jesus Christ's name and all God's people said amen. Amen. Amen.